If you have your Bibles, you turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. If you're visiting with us for the first time this morning, we are glad you're here. Uh, feel free to use also the bulletin to scan the QR code on the back to give us some information about you. We'd love to know who you are, um, how we can be praying for you or serve you in any way. Also, you've come right in the middle of, or really towards the conclusion of a sermon series through the book of Philippians, our normal practice here at Temple Hills Baptist Church is to preach what's called expositional sermons. That's to, to, to make the main point of the text of scripture the main point of the sermon, right? So we think the safest way and easiest way to do that is to preach consecutively through books of the Bible. And so we begin about 10 weeks ago in the book of Philippians. Two weeks from now, Lord willing, we'll finish this book. And then we'll start another book soon after. Um, and so if you are visiting with us, this is kind of our normal practice. We want to uh, honor God's word by reading God's word, pointing out what God's word says, thinking about what God's word means, and then thinking about how to apply God's word to our lives. And so if you're here this morning, we pray that the Lord will help us do that well. Philippians chapter 4, and this uh, chapter 3, I'm sorry. <laughs> We're going to chapter 4, verse 1. So Philippians 3, verse 12, through Philippians 4, verse 1. The apostle Paul says, Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. And brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have obtained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I want to title this morning's message, Pursuing the prize. Pursuing the prize. We all know what it is to be in pursuit of something, especially perhaps in the midst of this season, which I think is the most wonderful time of the year. 
For many of you, it's the most wonderful time of the year because of the approaching holidays that are coming. For me, it's the most wonderful time of the year because we're right in the midst of three major sports going on at the same time. In Major League Baseball, you've got players grinding out the last few games of the postseason in an effort to win the World Series. In professional football, in the NFL, we're, we're right near the, the middle of the season mark where, where injuries are starting to pile up and people are trying to position themselves to, to win the division and the trade deadline is coming up. They're trying to see what we can do to get to the goal of playing for and winning a Super Bowl in February. The NBA, the season just kicked off a few days ago after weeks and months of grueling individual workouts and team training. Or every player hit the court in an effort to try to win a world championship in June. If sports isn't your thing, let's take the metaphor out of, out of the sports arena and, and put it somewhere else. We're still all trying to win something, trying to pursue something. Perhaps you remember the time where the man or woman you're married to was once the man or woman you were interested in. And you spent a lot of time, you put a lot of energy and effort and money into winning their attention and their affection and their love. I, I, I mean, you, you, you took them out to eat. You wore shirts that didn't have any stains or holes in them. You cared about your appearance when you saw them. You, you text them and called them saying sweet nothings. You encouraged them. You did whatever it took to, to make them feel prized and valuable. You thought of what you could do to make them your own. Maybe that's what once marked your Christian life. When you first became a Christian, you were amazed at what Jesus Christ had done for you. You wanted to know him more and more and more. You gobbled up your Bible. You came to church every time the doors were open. You pursued. We all do it for something. But friends, I wonder, have you stopped pursuing? Or are you pursuing the wrong things? In our passage this morning, the Apostle Paul tells us that the Christian life, the entirety of the Christian life is about pursuing Christ Jesus and being with him. It's an active pursuit. It's a worthwhile pursuit. It's a pursuit that does not look back, but presses ahead towards the prize of Christ Jesus himself. Here's the main point. I think Paul wants to to press home in this passage. And so the main point of our sermon this morning, the Christian life is one of pursuing Jesus Christ to be more like him now and to be with him later. The Christian life is about pursuing Jesus Christ to be more like him right now and eventually to be with him later. And so Paul commands us to do two things in this passage, which will show, uh, serve as the two points of the sermon. Number one, live with purpose. We see that in verses 12 through 14. Live with purpose. And number two, watch 
whose walk you're following. Watch whose walk you're following. We see that in verse 15 all the way down to chapter 4, verse 1. First, live with purpose. Paul begins our passage with a confession. God is not done with me yet. I am not a finished product. He says in verse 12, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. What is the this that Paul has not already attained? Well, it's the goal of being completely conformed to Christ, of being perfected. I mean, Paul talked about his life's desires in the previous passage back in verses 10 and 11. He, he said what he wanted most was to know him, to know Jesus Christ, to, to know the, the power of his resurrections, to, to share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death so that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Well, following on the heels of that statement, Paul wants to make it known that the project is still in progress. That day is coming, but it is not here yet. It makes the important point that spiritual perfection, that complete knowledge, complete actual righteousness is not something that we attain in this life, but in the next. I think that teaches us two things. One, it teaches us to temper our expectations for this life. There will not be heaven on earth. Neither will the full benefits that one day will be ours as believers in Christ be ours until Christ returns. You can't attain perfection by your effort now. No, you and I will still live in a fallen and sinful world. And you and I will still sin. There will be much struggle as we live here. Secondly, it teaches us to hope for the future day that is coming and all that it brings. The sight of Jesus Christ face to face. The total removal of sin. The total removal of the temptation to sin. No more struggle with sin. No more tears. No more heartache or hurt but only joy, increasing joy, as we reside in the presence of King Jesus forever and ever and ever. That day is certainly coming, but it's in the future. For now, we live imperfect lives. None of us have arrived, not even the great apostle Paul. And friends, that confession, that reality is actually good for us to acknowledge. And it humbles us. No matter how much you've learned and grown, there's still much more to learn and to grow to be. And it helps us not to put too much hope in the things or in people in this life. But what it should not do, what it should not cause us to do or encourage us is towards slothfulness, towards inactivity, towards coasting in life. You know, to think, if I can't be perfect, why even try? 
I mean, if, if the glories of heaven are certain to come, then let me sit back and let them come. No, rather, Paul says it encourages maximal effort to secure firmly, to grab hold tightly to the resurrection life, to make sure that we attain it and don't fall short of it. And so notice that, that Paul says, even though, even though I haven't already obtained the perfect state to come, I hotly pursued it. I press on to make it my own. But notice here how careful Paul is theologically. Any talk, any acknowledgement of his labor, of his efforts, which are absolutely essential in the Christian life, nobody can rest firmly in calling themselves a Christian who never actually lives like a Christian, who doesn't put sin to death in their life, who doesn't progress in holiness. The Bible tells us that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. No, it doesn't happen automatically. It requires some work, some effort, some pursuit. But any talk of that pursuit, Paul says, must be infused with talk of Christ prior pursuit of us. Our works are grounded in his work. We love him because he first loved us. Paul says, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has already done something for me. He's already made me his own. What Christ did for Paul on the Damascus Road when he totally transformed his life motivates and fuels every moment of what Paul will do. He's made me, I mean, Paul is reflecting, a wretch like me, someone who was locking up Christians, who hated Jesus Christ, he's made me his own. What will I not do to make him my own? Friends, if you are a Christian, this is your testimony. Christ Jesus has made me his own. We once were not his own. We once belonged to a different master. We were slaves to sin and Satan. We were carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind destined to eternal death in hell. But Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, had different plans for us. And so he left heaven and pursued us. He came to earth and took on our bodies and then went to a cross and took on our sins. He shed his innocent blood. To wash away all our sins. He shed his blood to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He shed his blood to remove from us every single bit of guilt for our sins. He shed his blood to die and to save us. By his death and resurrection, he ransomed us. He bought us up out of the slave market of sin. And he transferred us into his eternal heaven kingdom. And now he reigns over us all as our new king, as our new Lord, as our new master. And what does he require of us? That we live all out for him. That we grow in godliness and conformity to his image, not to earn our interest into heaven, not to earn the right to be with him, but to demonstrate that we actually belong to him, that he's precious to us, 
that we long to see him and to be with him. If that's what we really want, we live like it and for him now. We, we, we press on. But, but what does it require? Well, two things we see in verse 13. After acknowledging again that the, the spiritually perfect life is not already something he has, Paul states it's, it's something he longs to have in Christ. And to achieve it, he, he has to be single-minded, singularly, singularly focused, do one thing that has two kind of directions. I got to forget what lies behind and I got to strain forward to what lies ahead. Saying some of us can't make any spiritual progress because we keep peeking to the past. We keep looking at what's behind us and it's absolutely crippling us. Oh, what did forgetting what lies behind look like for Paul? Well, it does not mean having absolutely no recollection of past things. I mean, we saw in our previous passage where we were at a few weeks ago in, in verses five and six that, that Paul remembers his former life. He catalogs his past achievements as a Jew, his credentials as a Jew. It doesn't mean you absolutely forget everything in the past, but what it means is that you don't rest upon any of those past things. You don't look to past accomplishments boast in. And neither do you look to past failures to beat you up. We keep pressing ahead. Saints, some of us need to hear that this morning. Because some of us are here this morning spiritually stunned. Heaven and Jesus don't seem real and don't seem valuable to you. Because you keep looking back. But saints, we need to keep our eyes on Jesus and the glory that lies ahead with him. I mean, that's the only real way to grow. That's the way you fight sin. You know, if you come this morning and you, you are here this morning and you really couldn't sing the songs before Augusta. Right. You really couldn't talk about this, this Jesus, this Holy Spirit who Jesus is using to refine you. You really didn't resonate with, with, with boasting and glorying in the songs because sin is, is so prevalent in your life. And it's causing you to think that heaven could not be yours and Jesus can't be yours. If that is your stance this morning, you don't need to keep looking back at how many sins you committed this past week. You don't need to keep looking back to how many sins you committed this morning. You need to look ahead to Jesus. You don't need to look at the sin that that clings so closely to our heels. We need to look ahead and set our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and now sits at the right hand of the throne of God, reigning forever. Some of us need to look, stop looking back at how many times we've, we've failed, how many times we've tripped up over our words and our actions as Christians. Because looking back only forces you to live a defeated life. Now look to Jesus. The reality is, as many times as you failed, he's already forgiven every single one of them. The majesty and glory of the cross is that when Jesus Christ died, he died for all your sins, all the ones behind you. 
All the ones you might be sitting in. All the ones you will commit. That does not endorse sin. It doesn't promote us to keep sinning. What it does promote, though, is a wholehearted trust in Christ. Right? For every look at your sin, take ten looks to Christ. Look ahead to what Christ has already done and what he will do. Welcome forgiven sinners like us into his kingdom. Friends, press ahead towards godliness. Don't keep peeking behind towards your ungodliness. Some of us keep on looking to the past and our past sins. Others of us keep on looking back to the hurts and the pains we've endured. We allow suffering, either self-inflicted or that others have inflicted upon us, to devastate our lives, to grow bitterness in our hearts, to cause us not to make any spiritual progress. Friends, you don't need to minimize all the hurts or pains in life. But we do need to come to a, a point in, in, in life where the pain seems more minimal in light of what's ahead. I mean, Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, I consider that the present sufferings of the present age are not worth comparing to the glories that will be revealed to us later. For many of us, there isn't enough joy in our souls to overcome our sorrows. What we need is not less sorrows. What we need is more joy. And if we remember that joy is found only in the presence of Jesus, then we'll press on to be in the presence of Jesus. We'll strain forward to what lies ahead. Joy with the Lord. Eternal glory in the Lord. The picture that Paul uses here of, of straining forward is the imagery of, of, a, of a runner straining every single ounce of energy out of his body. Straining every single limb to its maximum flexibility. Stretching out himself as he crosses the finish line. There's a goal in mind. It's the same athletic imagery that Paul uses in, in verse 14. Pressing on toward the goal. And not aimlessly or pointlessly, but to win a prize. And what is the ultimate prize? What is Christ? It's to be more like him. Until one day we are actually with him. Until one day we receive, Paul says, the upward or heavenly call of God granted to those who are in Christ Jesus, our Lord, who are united to him by repentance and by faith. It's just another reminder in this book that what God begins, he always completes. God has no missing or incomplete assignments. God called us initially when we were dead in our sins and he called us to a new life in Jesus Christ. And the Bible tells us that those he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorifies. There's a culmination to it all. What God starts, he carries along throughout the process. It's a chain of events where there's no broken link. When God calls you to himself, he didn't call you just to be saved back then or to walk an hour or to say your prayer. He called you all the way to experience the upward call. 
when he calls us home to heaven. Paul says that's the prize. I'm not resting in past laurels. I'm not looking at past failures. I'm reaching toward what is ahead for me. The prize of seeing and being with the Lord Jesus Christ. All this life is leading somewhere. We need to remember that because day to day it feels pointless, doesn't it? If we were honest, sometimes you, you wake up out that bed and them bones are creaking and those eyes are weak. And if you pray to the Lord, it's pleading, Lord, give me 10 more minutes of sleep. You don't have desire to read the Bible. You, you really have so much to do during the day that you really have a hard time focusing on the Lord. As Melanie read for us earlier, you see everybody else around you who has totally rejected Jesus living a better life than you. You're tired of fighting sin. You're tired of, of not giving in to the flesh's strong temptations. It feels like it's all pointless because at the end of the day, you lay down just as tired as you begin the day. You lay down not feeling like super spiritual, superhuman. But the point is not what you experience today or tomorrow. The point is that when the Lord saves you, he uses all your yesterdays and todays and tomorrows to lead to a never ending day where you'll be with him forever. It's leading somewhere. There is a prize to come. Nobody runs, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, who does not run for a prize. Ain't nobody just shadow boxing out here. No, we're fighting real enemies. We're running a race to win a reward. There is a certain prize that lies ahead for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. And it motivates us to keep pressing on. To persevere in the faith, even when all the voices outside and inside keep telling you otherwise. No, Paul says, keep going. It motivates us to live with, with purpose, with a daily, single-minded pursuit of Jesus Christ. And, and, and how do we get help living that kind of life? The kind of life pursuing Christ, a life with purpose? Well, what is by looking at good models? That leads to our second point where Paul warns us, commands us, watch whose walk you are following. Watch whose walk you are following. You know, one of the strange oxymorons in our day is that our culture has prioritized and promoted expressive individualism. Everybody pursues their own path. To live like what you already are and for you to define the, the terms of your existence. You're commanded almost. And, and not to follow anybody else's expectations. Not to follow anybody else's norms or anybody else's rules. You just be true to you. Now, I say it's an oxymoron. Because as we look around... No matter how much people prize expressive individualism, everybody is living like everybody else. I mean, people's supposed individualism, just be true to you, is never really that. I mean, you, 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 just, you just have to post your thoughts on social media. 
with hopes and expectations and deep yearnings that others will like what you said and comment on what you said. As much as you say, I'm just being true to, to me, you look desperately for other people's approval. Or folks dress in supposedly distinct ways. They adopt certain looks with the basis that this is just my style. Nobody gonna tell me what to do with my body or what to wear. But they wear it so that they can get noticed by other people. And only because they've seen other people pull off the same look. And guess what? When they don't receive compliments or commendation or don't get attention, or if they get negative attention, they switch up their appearance and try something else. You see, as much as we like to talk about our individualism, we were made to shape and be shaped by others. The only question is, are you being shaped in the right way and by the right people? Paul here wants to make sure of it. He wants to make sure we adopt the right mindset and that we adopt the right lifestyle. First, Paul wants us to adopt the right mindset. Look at verse 15. Paul says, let those of us who are mature think this way. Paul just talked about the single-minded pursuit of Christ, of growing more and more in conformity to him with the goal of one day being with him. Well, here Paul says that's not just his unique thing. That's the mature mindset of every Christian. I think it shows that there's levels to this. As a brand new Christian, you might just be enthralled that Jesus saved you. Amazed that you're going to heaven one day. But as Paul said, that new reality that Christ has made you his own has catapulted him on a lifelong pursuit to make Christ his own. And it ought to do the same for every single one of us. We ought to be maturing to the point that we are consumed with Christ, more and more captivated by his grace, more and more longing to be conformed to his image through trials and triumphs, on our jobs, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, longing ultimately to see him one day. Yes, be amazed at the new birth, but don't stay a baby. We all need to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. What's needed is a mature mindset that moves everything else to the background and moves closer to Jesus and aims to be with him in heaven. But what's also remarkable in this passage and what might be missed is a more subtle call to adopt Paul's mature mindset in how he deals with the Christians. He's called them to follow his mindset of singular, zealous pursuit of Christ. But then he says at the end of verse 15 and into verse 16, that if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Yes, Paul calls everybody in the church to maturity. But Paul also recognizes that not everybody in the church is mature. But notice what he doesn't do that we're often guilty of. He doesn't rake them over the coals for not being up to par. 
He doesn't question their Christianity. I mean, if Jesus ain't your everything all the time, I'm not even sure you're saved. He doesn't use his apostolic authority and theological expertise to force them to change their minds right now, right now on the spot. No, he entrusts Christians to God's care and trust that God will ultimately convict and convince and conform his people. Paul knows he has a part to play in the process, but it's not the final or determinative part. As he says elsewhere, I planted, Apollo's watered, but God gives the growth. He believes that as it pertains not only to salvation, but also to sanctification. And he calls people to hold true, to live up to whatever level of maturity they've already attained, even as he trusts God will continue to mature them. And that's a good model for us to follow. Isn't it? Many of us think we need to make people change their minds. We think that our tight theological reasoning or our authoritative positions as pastor or church leader or parents or as older, more mature Christian can be used to lean on folks and make them grow to our positions, to, to, to make them grow to a greater understanding of the truth. Friends, we inform, but we cannot conform. We might even at times give commands, but we cannot control. Part of what it looks like for us to adopt Paul's mindset is to pursue more and more Christ-likeness. Knowing that like him, we haven't yet arrived. And so we can also be patient and gentle with other Christians who also have not yet arrived. And that's actually the kind of atmosphere that's really conducive for spiritual maturity. One where we give each other a lot of space and a lot of grace grow in Christ-likeness. Saints, pray that you'd be that kind of Christian. Pray that we'd be that kind of church. We're not only to adopt and emulate Paul's mindset, but also to emulate Paul and others' lifestyle. Look at verse 17. Paul says, brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. The, the term there, walk, means to live, to conduct one, oneself a certain way, to, to have a certain lifestyle. And Paul is so bold as to command others to imitate his. And not only his, he, he's not the only model Christian. He's not the only one who has a commendable life. I mean, he's already commended people like Timothy and Epaphroditus in this book. Now, Paul says, keep your eyes peeled on others who also walk like we walk, who also live like we live. Friends, to be spiritually minded and mature people, we need spiritual role models. Well, some of y'all are already ready to go uber spiritual. Jesus is my role model. That's true. You can live on that. <laughs> but Jesus has also gifted us other people in the local church to look up to, 
to be conformed to as they are being conformed to the image of Christ Jesus himself. Now, I think this requires a few things. It requires folks to own their roles as role models, to own their roles as more mature saints. It's kind of a personal pet peeve, but one of the most disgusting things for me to witness is an older man who don't own the fact that he's an older man. Who's still trying to live his glory days in his early 20s. Right? He's trying to wear every single piece of clothing that the young boy's wearing. He's trying to keep up with every single piece of lingo, every single bit of culture. Right? He's looking at young girls and comments like, please, what are you doing? Stop that. You're supposed to be an older man. I'm supposed to learn from you. It's sad to see when older people don't own the responsibility that comes with being older people. There's a trust that's given. As God has given you years, God means for you to use those years to pour back into people who don't have as many years. Well, saints, in a similar way, it's going to take some of us more mature Christians who've been Christians for a while, taking ownership of showing others what mature Christianity looks like. If you feel not entirely adequate to do that, well, join the club. Neither did Paul. He already said, it's not that I've already attained perfection. Oh, but, but I'm willing to tell people to model whatever bit of maturity I've already got. Your friends, you might not be as mature as you want to be. But it's a good reality that you are more mature than somebody else in the church. So live like it and be so bold as to call others to live like you do. Invite younger Christians, either in age or in stage, into your life to observe and learn from you. And let me just encourage some of our older saints here. So, over years here, I've, I've, I've heard some, some older Christians kind of talk about, I really want this mindset. But, you, you know, I've been a Christian for a long time and I've grown up in churches where this kind of intentional discipling mindset wasn't present. I, I'm, I haven't learned how to do this. I'm not sure I can do this. Well, that's okay. Even if you haven't been taught the entire process of what it looks like, you still have much to teach us as younger Christians. You have much to teach us what it looks like to follow Jesus, not only for a few months or a few years, but for decades through trials and tragedies, joys and triumphs. I think of some of our Older sisters going through some significant health challenges. I think of Miss Blanche and, and Ava and Karen. I think of some older brothers like Kevin and David. You talk to them for any amount of time, you prick them, and what's going to come out at some point really soon in the conversation is talk about Jesus. They can't stop talking about Jesus. And when you're talking to them and they keep talking about Jesus, what happens in your own heart? Are you annoyed a little bit? Frustrated? Or wanting to shift the conversation to something more juicy, more relevant, more significant? Are you tempted to say, they just holy roller, always talking about Jesus, over-spiritualizing everything? Maybe what you should do is learn from them. Some of our old saints 
as they get older, have appetites that are more and more longing to see and savor Jesus. He is their prize. We need to adopt the heart that says, give me more of what they have. Don't let me be critical that they're always talking about Christ. What better thing is there to talk about? The opposite side of the coin is we, we need godly models, older, mature Christians to, to be willing to invite us to imitate. The other side of the coin is that we need to be willing to learn. We need to have the posture of being easily taught, of being molded by godly models. We need to come to church not just to soak what the pastor has to say. We need to come to church with the mindset to keep my eyes open on other Christians who can teach me a few things. Let me encourage you, challenge you over, challenge you over the next few days and weeks to do one of two things, or maybe do both things. One, ask the question, seek, who can I pour into here? Who can I invite into my life to, to model what it looks like to be a Christian? And two, who can I learn from here? If you need help asking those questions, reach out to, to Warner, reach out to me. We love to try to do some matchmaking to, to allow you to pour into younger Christians and to allow you to learn from more mature Christians. We need godly models to help us treasure Jesus. Because there are so many ungodly models that are constantly tempting us to treasure any and everything but Jesus. And notice Paul's reasoning for imitating mature Christians. Verse 18, for or because many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with mind on earthly things. There's so many bad models out there, not for Christ, but against him. They are enemies of the cross. They deny Jesus and the all-important work of Christ dying on the cross to save sinners like us. Who are these people? And in what ways do they deny the cross? What ways are they enemies of the cross? Well, we get hints in verse 19 where Paul says their God is their belly. Now, earlier in this chapter, Paul pointed out the error of the Judaizers. These Jews who were insisting that Gentiles need to be circumcised in order to be saved. That these Gentiles need to follow Old Testament rituals and laws in order to be saved. Well, you know, once you start demanding adherence to the law at one element, you got to keep demanding adherence to the law on other elements. At least if you're going to be consistent. And so this reference to their God is their belly it's probably a reference to the Judaizers and their demands for people to, to keep the Old Testament dietary laws for them to be saved. Yes, you got to be circumcised and you can't eat pork. You can't eat shellfish. You can't eat the, you know, three hoofed animals. All those things you read about in Genesis. You're like, why is this here? Right. And people are still trying to tell us now, don't eat those things in order to be saved. Well, how does that make them enemies of the cross? Well, because any time you add anything 
to the finished work of Christ on the cross, you stand against the work of Christ on the cross. You act as if the precious blood of Jesus is deficient. You act as if his sacrificial death means more. There are many enemies of the cross, even today. People demanding some external, extra-biblical activity that you must do to add to the work of Christ. You got to get baptized to really be saved. You should be baptized as a sign of your faith, but baptism don't save nobody. You, you can't eat this, so you must eat that. Well, food has never saved anybody. Jesus said what goes into the body does not defile you, but what comes out of the body is what defiles you. What's inside the man, and Jesus came to cleanse the inside of the cup, the inside of the person to give new hearts and lives. Anybody that's, that's telling you to, to add something to the work of Christ is somebody you need to deny. Someone who's walking as an enemy to the cross of Christ. There's another way this idea of, of their God is their belly can be taken. Not only in reference to strict observance to Old Testament dietary laws, but also in reference to loose allowance of an appetite for everything. Not merely food, but all of life's pleasures. I mean, Paul talks in Romans chapter 16, verse 18, about ungodly people. And he says, what marks them is not serving the Lord, but living to serve their own appetites. Whatever they want, whatever they lust after is what they go for, is what they pursue. Now, such people are also enemies of the cross as they deny the cross of Christ. I don't need a Jesus to die for my sins because there is no such thing as sin. Everything is permissible. Uh, put the full smorgasbord of things on the platter. I'm going to eat them all. Who's going to tell me otherwise? Indulging the flesh. Indulging the heart with all the heart desires after. So then this passage teaches us that you can be an enemy of the cross through legalism or through licentiousness, through demanding adherence to the law or denying that anything is out of bounds, glorying in the shame that they both bring, having your mind only on things below, only on things that are temporal and passing away, only on things that will never satisfy They'll never satisfy you. More importantly, neither will they satisfy the wrath of God against you. So many people live this way. Paul says, do not follow them. Stay away from them. But notice he also says, don't gloat over them. Don't rejoice that you ain't one of them. No, Paul talks about them with tears in his eyes. He weeps over the enemies of the cross. Why? Well, look at the beginning of verse 19. Because their end is destruction. Friends, here is the sober reality of all who have not had their sins forgiven at the cross of Christ. 
for all who have not turned from their sins and put their trust in the finished work of Christ on their behalf, they will meet God's wrath and it will be horrible. That should cause us not joy, but tears. We shouldn't wish hell on our worst enemy. It should lead us not to follow after such people, but to warn them, to seek to witness them, to win them to Christ. It should cause us to pray for them and to plead with them. Please don't continue down this pathway. It is not going to end well for you if you keep living against Christ himself. Friends, if the reality of the fate of unbelievers has such an effect on Christians, what greater effect should it have on you if you are here this morning as an unbeliever, as someone who denies the cross of Christ? You might believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose from the grave. You say that intellectually, but you live like an enemy to the cross. You live indulging all the sins that you say Christ died for you for. You, you live according to some law and not according to the love that Christ displayed on the cross for you. Friends, you might live it up now, but there will be no happy ending for you. There is wrath coming, destruction coming to those who deny Christ. You will be destroyed, not annihilated once and for all, but eternally suffer in hell for every single one of your sins, chiefly the sin of denying and rejecting the very one who came to save you from your sins and belittling him and his work, thinking of Jesus as small and insignificant in comparison to the earthly things that you enjoy and follow and put your hope in. Friends, you will go to hell for the things you put your hope in. You will go to hell for treasuring anything and anyone above Jesus Christ. Friends, don't let that be you. Turn from your sins this morning and turn to Jesus Christ in faith and repentance. Put your trust in the finished work of Christ on the cross so that you might be saved so that you might be rescued from the wrath to come. And so that you might be guaranteed a far better reality. The reality that is ours in Christ. I mean, look at how different the plight is, the path is, the reality is for Christians in verse 20 from unbelievers in verses 18 and 19. Paul says in verse 20, but our, right, he's talking about what's going to happen with them. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior. And in case you get it twisted, there's only one Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that even enables him to subject all things to himself. Where we belong, where we have guaranteed access to, is heaven, but it is in heaven now, right? When we place our faith in Christ, our future was sealed, right? Notice that Paul doesn't speak of the future. Our citizenship will be in heaven. 
He says, our citizenship is right now, presently, as you sit in these seats in Temple Hills, your citizenship is in heaven. As the old folks would say, our names are written on the heavenly rolls. Right? And can nobody erase your name? It's written in the blood of Christ. And you can't put no whiteout over it. Right? They only use whiteout no more, right? It's only what they backspace, can't backspace no more. Right now, your future is sealed. Live now as if we trust that to be true. We're to live now as citizens of a heavenly kingdom, which means that unlike enemies of the cross, we don't have minds on earthly things, but on heavenly things. Saints, that means that we're to live here on earth as exiles. This world, you got to keep catechizing yourself on this. This world is not my home. Heaven is my home. I will be there one day. This world is not my home. King Jesus is my own. He has made me his own and he will welcome me into his eternal kingdom to be with him forever. He's our savior. And we work for him laboring to look more and more like him even as we await his return. We, we spend all our lives and our time looking to what lies ahead, not spending all of our time and energy so worried about what's here and now. And we, don't get me twisted. We should engage the world we live in as exiles. I mean, when God took the children of Israel into exile in the Old Testament, he told them to live for the welfare of this. So, so we don't just totally kind of butt out of society. But neither do we make idols out of society. Neither, neither do we live as if this is all that there ever will be. Now we look to, to a coming Savior, Jesus Christ. Not a coming Savior next November when we vote in some election. And not in some savior in the form of some policy or procedure. No, we need not to spend all our time and labor trying to create a Christianized country through elected officials and through stringent laws. Friends, a perfect heavenly colony is coming. A perfect heavenly colony will never be achieved in this lifetime. And that perfectly heavenly colony will be filled with perfect heavenly people. When Christ comes and when he transforms us, can no law transform you? Laws are good. But only Christ can transform you totally, finally, completely. And it will happen at that final stage the Bible talks about of glorification. When Jesus will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. As the Apostle John tells us, beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know, there's a certainty, we know that when he appears... We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And, John goes on, 
Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone whose hopes are for heaven, who knows their citizenship is ultimately in heaven, who pursues being with Christ, aims right now to look more and more like Christ until we see Christ. We follow godly examples, godly models who help us to grow in Christ's likeness. And we reject ungodly examples who would turn our eyes away from him. We, as Paul concludes in chapter four, verse one, must stand firm in the Lord. Rooted in him, rejoicing in him, running hard after him until he returns to claim us. Saints, he's coming. And the wait will be worth it. Live worthy lives now in pursuit of living with Jesus Christ later. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would help us to heed your word. Help us to live every single day with purposeful pursuit of Jesus Christ himself. Help us to pursue Jesus not just as an idea, not just as, as some ancient figure we read about in the past, Help us to pursue Jesus Christ as our living Lord, as the one who loved us, who gave his life for us to make us his own, and who one day is coming back to have us forever as his own. Oh, Lord, help us to live in light of what Christ has done, in light of what is coming for us. Give us good models to follow, Lord, as they follow you. Help us to be those good models to cause others to follow you better. We pray all this in Jesus' name. And for his sake, amen.